Welcome to the Estate Planning Project. My name is Mary Bart, Chair of Caregiving Matters. Our purpose with this project is public education on a wide range of estate planning topics. With a growing, aging population, unprecedented wealth transfer from one generation to the next, and the dramatic rise in estate litigation, the need for estate planning public education has never been greater. This is a technology-based project that is producing podcasts, articles, blog posts, and videotaped workshops. As a social collaborative initiative, experts such as lawyers, estate planners, and financial planners will share their thoughts and ideas on a bottomless list of estate planning topics. This project offers general information only and is not a substitute for seeking personalized professional advice. And our guest expert today is lawyer Chris Delaney, and his topic will be the critical importance of purposeful intergenerational estate planning to effective family enterprise succession planning. Welcome, Chris. Oh, well, hello, Mary. How are you today? I'm great, and thank you so much for joining our project. Oh, it's a pleasure. I've been looking forward to this opportunity for quite some time. It's a, a very powerful opportunity to, as in your opening you mentioned, uh, uh, shed critical information at an important uh, point demographically for, for uh, Canada and, and everywhere, frankly. A lot of people are asking important questions, and, and I think we can get some answers from this podcast series. Well, that's exciting, and I do have a series of questions for you. And my first one is this. Most wealth fails to survive to the third generation of a family. In fact, there is a saying common to almost every culture that goes something like this, shirtless to shirtless in three generations. Why is this phenomenon so prevalent, and how can we avoid it? Oh, that's a, a very good, uh, a very good question, Mary, and it's something that I encounter a lot in the work that I've done over the years. I work with a variety of different types of what I like to call enterprise family wealth, which is including all the elements of what a family might include in their wealth, not just a business or not just financial liquidity. And the fact of the matter is that less than 10% of family wealth, and, and this is certainly a well-known phenomenon in the family business area, less than 10% of family businesses make it into a third generation. And this is experienced in almost every culture. We use that particular saying, the shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. Basically what that saying stands for is the proposition that first generation creates wealth or a first generation creates wealth second generation stewards it in some way and by the time you get to the third generation they have a precarious relationship with that wealth they end up squandering it it's prevalent because i think for a variety of reasons I, I think there's four or five that i could maybe point to specifically the first one i think is that planning is actually really hard work You've got to think about it. You've got to think through it. And thinking strategically is not easy for people. Uh, we tend to react to stimulus rather than slog our way through the, the hard work associated with planning. Secondly, and maybe most importantly, most of the time in planning, and I'm sure you've experienced this in all of the wonderful people you've interviewed, 
most planning is for the financial wealth that people have. The, the beneficiaries themselves as, as individuals are often an afterthought. We don't spend a lot of time thinking about the purpose and potential of the wealth for the inheritors themselves as individuals. And in fact, we almost never take any time to assess their goals and dreams from their perspective. It tends to be all about the money, the, the financial money, I should say. There was some interesting research a few years ago that I came across, and I use this in a lot of the presentations I make to bring the point home. You can see this on, I, I'm a, a voracious watcher of TED Talks. There's a related one by a professor, his last name is Piff, P-I-F-F, where he talks about some research that he did at the, I believe, the University of California, uh, UCLA, and they used Monopoly games to show that students who had the game tilted in their favor actually started to become mean and selfish. And then there was some additional research that was done around the same time that showed just talking about money can make people uh, mean. It has a tendency to focus on the wrong elements of what they really care about in their planning. And so what I find, and again, this is contributing to why we see money disappearing by the third generation, is that we're not really thinking about what is important to the clients as they're doing their planning. It becomes about losses and gains rather than experiences, education, and opportunity. And it's often done with the wrong focus. So the reason I mentioned that research about it making people mean is when you talk about financial wealth, people begin to become concerned about losing that wealth. Whereas when we look at the truer, broader sources of their wealth, such as their family members and what their goals are, we see that people plan from a perspective of abundance and that they tend to change their mindset very significantly. So really the planning should be for the individuated goals and aspirations of the inheritors themselves and how the financial wealth can serve them rather than the other way around. So I think that one of the reasons we see wealth destroyed in three generations is that people get that turned around. They tend to plan for the money instead of actually planning for how the money can serve the beneficiaries or the inheritors of the estate. Another reason that I think we see the wealth destroyed between generations is that most families think that they're good communicators and have effective decision-making processes in places, but they really don't. They're primitive. They work on basic issues inside the family. But when it comes to complex emotional and transgenerational concepts, such as the various sources of wealth that a family will have, they often don't have the level of sophistication to be able to manage conflict when it arises. So there's usually a shortfall there. And what's nice about you know all these, these shortcomings that I've described is that they're all fixable. I mean, if we can identify them, they're all fixable. I guess a couple of other uh, possible contributors that I've seen over the years is that families and their advisors, for that matter, often fail to appreciate that wealth preservation, so intergenerational wealth preservation, is a dynamic intergenerational process in and of itself, which is to say that if we're doing planning for inheritors, we should engage those inheritors and understand what they see in the wealth and what the story is that's being told by the wealth from their perspective. I've also noticed over the years that kind of uniquely Canadian in some ways, families fail to think long term about their wealth. I don't know how many people I come across or have come across over the years where they really believe that they should just be planning the transition of the financial wealth or any other source of family wealth 
into the next generation. They're not really thinking about their grandchildren or their great-grandchildren. And, and a lot of the very successful wealth transitions that are able to defeat the shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves experience or paradigm start off by thinking in terms of preserving wealth for a hundred years. And then their generation, their children's generation, I should say, the second generation, they think the same thing. And if every generation is thinking like that, the wealth itself takes on a, a timeless quality. There are two final points. I thought this would be an important question that would come up, is that it's fundamentally a qualitative process rather than quantitative. Estate planning or intergenerational wealth succession planning, uh, I prefer to call it transition planning myself, is really a, a qualitative process. We're really looking at the qualities of the wealth, what it is that it brings to the qualities of our beneficiaries as well. The quantitative part is though where the planning tends to focus and that has to shift. If we can shift away from saying the interest is really about saving tax or attaining a structure that keeps $100 versus $99 over to how can we make sure that this beneficiary and this beneficiary group can attain their goals, that fundamentally is a shift that is really, really important and will contribute to the preservation of the wealth across the generation. So those few of the things that I think, Mary, contribute to the destruction of wealth across generations. How do we preserve against that? Being aware of it is probably the starting point. Every one of those things that I talked about is something that if families and their advisors are aware, contribute to the destruction of wealth or wealth entropy, as I like to call it, we can plan around that. We can build bumpers and decision-making and communication structures that make sure that the, those contributing factors are minimized or neutered completely. Well, that's very interesting, Chris, and it brings me to my next question. Does it matter whether wealth is destroyed in three generations? Isn't creative destruction a good thing? You know, it's interesting. What that really begs is the question, what are the true sources of family wealth? So I think when I ask that question, a lot of your listeners will go, well, it's the money, of course. But I actually think, and I, I've mentioned this already, the true sources, the real value what our financial wealth serves are the other sources of wealth in our family. And one of the acronyms that we use to describe the other sources of family wealth is FISH, F-I-S-H. The F would stand for the financial wealth in a family. So that's obviously one source of family wealth. And that's where accountants and lawyers are very, very prolific, powerful, and, and uh, important sources of planning advice. There are also three other elements to that acronym. So every family has its own intellectual, collective family wealth. And these are the, the things that the family knows or the education that they've attained or the stories that they tell, which, by the way, is another source of failing to tell stories between generations is another source of the destruction of family wealth. There's a lot of research that actually has been able to demonstrate that family stories contribute significantly to the proliferation and enhancement of entrepreneurship, in a, particularly in a business family, which is, I think, a, a quality that we are always looking to grow if we can, a, a mindset in our loved ones. If the other elements of the I, the S, the H, the, the H, of course, is the, the human capital. It's what we have in the family, who we have, what they bring to the family itself. And then the S is the social capital that we have as a family. Every family has social capital. I work with a lot of business families and 
oftentimes among their biggest concern when they're doing planning is, you know, what will happen to our employees? What is the legacy of our business in this community, for example? And there's a value that comes with that. And if we identify those, the intellectual and the social and the human capital that every family has, and we start from the proposition that we really ought to be investing the financial capital into the preservation and growth of those elements of the family wealth, then we do a much better job of protecting the wealth between the generations. And what we're doing by protecting the wealth is identifying those sort of pro-social elements of family wealth. And that's why it's important. Why would you not want to invest in the social capital of your family between generations? Why would you not want to invest in the human and the intellectual capital of your family members between generations? So I think it is really important. Another reason that I think it's important that we avoid wealth entropy is that I think we're economically entering a very interesting age of one that's been experienced before, but not by anyone that I think is alive today, sort of a new gilded age. I read a book a few years ago. It's not very often that a pure economics text is on the New York Times bestsellers list, but Thomas Teddy wrote one several years ago entitled Capital. And he argued that there's a significant section in the book on inheritance from a, an economist standpoint. And he really argued that going forward in an era where we have relatively low rates of income growth, where most of our children are going to require a post-secondary education to attain meaningful work, and where interest rates are kept very low, sources of income, for example, off of financial capital, are going to be increasingly important going forward. And this is something that uh, not everybody quite appreciates. Like I was able to, and our generation was able to try something really new and exciting. Maybe it was unsuccessful and we could start again. And if it was unsuccessful, we might even be able to start again. And that really was a wonderful confluence of demographics and economic growth around the world. But things have changed. Demographics don't really support that necessarily. And so preserving financial capital is going to be an important source of future income for families because there are going to be inheritors, going to be children and grandchildren that are going to require access to those income streams, or at least it would be something that would be beneficial for them. And the usual way to distribute financial capital when someone passes away is simply to split it up. You know, if you've got five children, you divide by five. And the financial cap is some of its intrinsic strength by being broken apart. So keeping wealth in more significant bundles and thinking more purposefully across generations with that bundle of wealth, I think anyways, is going to become more and more important as a way to drive and to contribute to enhanced income sources for families. It's kind of a unique conversation. I see it from time to time, and it's a little different way of thinking about what financial capital is in an estate planning setting. We don't tend to look at it that way. But I would couple that with that it would be also very important, if not critical to the whole preservation conversation, that you would identify that capital should be retained for those reasons, that is to say, to provide an income flow, but that it should be invested in those other elements of family wealth in order to be successful with the preservation effort. Well, that's interesting, and it brings me to my next question. Can you describe what is meant by family enterprise succession planning versus mere estate planning or business succession planning? Sure, and I even, I'd even i almost prefer to call it transition planning because succession planning, and this is a, a hair-splitting response, I suppose, but when I hear that, 
I think something has come to an end. And now we are transitioning or changing ownership. And I think that that is, for many people, a block to their planning. Most people don't like to plan. I'm probably one of the, uh, and you would be too, Mary, we're, we're in the odd subset of people that not only enjoy planning, we like planning for other people and promoting planning, but my experience has been most people don't like to plan. And I think one of the reasons for that is that it's change. They are trying to manage change and not everybody likes change. So I like to call it transition planning because it's really a switch. We're not really bringing something to an end. We're moving along a continuum. And so when we think about it in that context, we should also broaden what it is that we think of when we think of the family well. So family enterprise transition planning or succession planning is really talking about all the elements of wealth that a family has. So when I work with family businesses, for example, they often focus almost exclusively on the tax elements of the planning of their business. But they have investment property. They have fin other fin sources of financial capital. They have their, their cottage. They might have a holding company. They may have additional inheritances that are coming in from other sources. I would call those financial assets because they can almost all be liquidated to financial capital. But then they also have, as I've mentioned previously, their intellectual, their social, and their human capital. And there are other sources of non-financial capital in families as well. They have all of that to plan for. So when we say enterprise, we're really looking at planning for all of those elements to transition from one generation to the next or transition across generations. And that's very different than just going in and saying, I need to minimize tax or probate fees when I pass away. Because instead of just focusing on the tactic, we're going back to a strategic starting point and saying, let's look at everything we have and how they interplay with one another. And let's make sure that we look at it as an enterprise as opposed to isolated silos of wealth. And, you know, that's interesting, the whole idea of looking at it, as you say, from that fish description. And within families, not everybody is an asset to that family. And there can be the human factors, and I'm sure you've seen it, where there are people within that family and family business that are an actual liability to things moving forward or a liability to embracing change. And so I'm sure as you work with your clients and see people, it's not all happy and roses and there will be a lot of conflict and a lot of human factors that make this even more difficult, which means it's even more important to do. Uh, Mary, enterprise planning is really about looking at all of the wealth sources inside a family. So making sure that we've examined who the individual people are and looking at them as individuals, not as a class of beneficiaries such as these are my grandchildren or these are my great-grandchildren, but looking at this is my grandchild X and this is my great-grandchild Y. We're also looking at the various sources of financial capital inside the family and making sure that we don't just use the obvious ones, such as a family that has a business, for example. It's, it's very often the case when I meet with family members to do some transition planning or, or business succession planning, that all they really want to talk about is the family business. 
And what they don't realize is that that family business sits maybe at the center or, you know, as a significant part of overall enterprise that the family is engaged in. And it's an important piece, but it's not the only piece. The other elements of an enterprise would be the cottage that they might have or the financial investments that they might have, their RRSPs or their RIFs. It might also include the commitments that they've made to philanthropy or the commitments that they've made to savings for the education of their children and their grandchildren. And then the other parts of the enterprise family wealth would also be, as I mentioned earlier, those non-financial family resources, such as the human capital inside the family and the intellectual capital and their, their collective social capital, as well as the individuated families and their social capital. So when we do enterprise planning, we're looking at all of those sources of wealth, how they fit together, how they contribute, how they offer opportunities for leadership, where there are issues associated with that, where there are common values with that. And we plan for that well. Whereas most planning that you see, when you go to a lawyer and ask to do some estate planning, they're really usually looking at your money. How do I get your money from here to here in a tax efficient way? Similarly, you know, your tax account, we will be doing the same sort of approach. That's what they deal with. And that's what they see as a succession planning. And in fact, I don't even like to call it succession planning because psychologically, I've noticed over the years that when you say succession planning, there's actually a bit of a block that starts to rise up. People begin to think of it as as an ending rather than a beginning. And I view this type of planning as really, as the the title suggested, multi-generational uh, transgenerational planning that is more of a continuum than isolated event. And if we can get our transition planning, which is what I prefer to call it as opposed to succession planning, if we can get people thinking about it as transition planning instead of succession planning, I think that we will be much more successful in preserving that capital, uh, all the sources of family capital from generation to generation. So enterprise family wealth planning is really looking at all of the sources of family wealth inside of family, including the financial wealth, and doing what I would prefer to call transition planning rather than succession planning. And what we're trying to do with that, Mary, is we're trying to build a mindset around that wealth, a mindset of abundance, a mindset of growth, and a mindset of opportunity, rather than traditional estate planning or or succession planning, which marks the end of a leadership cycle or the end of an ownership cycle that will now start a new ownership cycle. That leads, I think, to the entropy that we see, so to the destruction of wealth between generations. Whereas if we look at it as a process that is more of a continuum, therefore, in that regard, an, an enterprise approach, we really are going to be a great deal more successful. Families have a lot more sources of wealth than I think as advisors we give them credit for. And we have to manage for all of those sources. And by calling it enterprise wealth, I think that that expands the definition and allows us to plan more holistically. Well, that's interesting, Chris. And can we expand on that by talking a bit about what is meant by purposeful planning versus more typical estate or financial planning? Absolutely. I, you know, and I won't give a specific example, but I had a, an interaction. Actually, it was a series of interactions, which I can sort of summarize in one here almost a decade ago, which was really a turning point for me in this adventure of work. And I met a person who had 
fairly significant wealth. They'd had a quiddity event in their family, and I was doing some, I guess at the time you would call it wealth, financial wealth succession planning. And at the end of that, I, you know, I had made some suggestions, Mary, that we're going to save her quite a bit of tax. We're here in Ontario, so it's probate tax we were talking about. And, and I was pretty excited about it. And at the end of that interaction, she was looking at me, almost sadness in the, uh, in the look. And I said, I, I haven't answered your questions. And she politely said, you know, you never really asked me the questions that I wanted to answer. And so I put my pen down. But what she meant, Mary, was how do I get it to them and not have it destroy them? It was significant wealth. And she was really thinking about her grandchildren, I think, in that case. She, she wanted, they were an entrepreneurial family. And that was something that had been really important to her. And I hadn't ever taken the time to divine that out of our conversation. I focused on the money and how do we get the money from her generation to the next generation in an efficient and effective way and close the file, tick the boxes, and away you go. And so what I hadn't done is really found out what the purpose of her wealth was. What was it she was trying to do with this? Why did she accumulate it in the first place? And that, I began sort of an odyssey of my own, I I suppose, if you will, of experiences and education and retraining my mindset with this wealth planning. And I came to the conclusion that we really had to look at uh, transition wealth transition planning as a purposeful process. What is the purpose of this wealth? So now when I work with some clients, you know, they'll say, well, I need to save tax. And I'll push them through five, six times. Why does that matter to you? And then when they answer, why does that matter to you? And without fail, Mary, by the time you get to about the fifth, and almost certainly by the sixth time you've asked them why, they will tell you that the reason they're they care about any of this is because they love their children or they love their grandchildren or there's something or a cause that they care about. That is the purpose that is driving their planning ambitions. And if we get to the purpose, if we get to the why that is driving their planning, then any tactic that we choose at the end, whether it's an estate freeze for a business or whether it is a trust for a beneficiary because they have difficulty with wealth, Whatever the tactic is that we choose, we started from a position of purpose and we can measure any proposal, any diversion in the planning against that purpose. If it's not advancing that purpose, then we ought to be very skeptical about its usefulness because it's not going to fit. So I, I, looked back, I looked back on that and I started thinking, well, how can we build some decision-making process and architecture around that? And I'm trying to avoid starting with a tactic starting with purpose, in a business setting, that is a strategic approach. We're really setting goals, and then we are establishing objectives, and then we're going to create a group of strategies. And at the end of the day, we're going to pick out tactics that are going to achieve those goals. And in a family, that might include a, you know, like a family mission statement or a statement of values, something like that that operates as a North Star to guide all future decisions that we make. So when I'm talking about purposeful planning, that's what I'm talking about, is a fundamentally strategic approach. Whereas, what I think we see today, for the most part, and in fact, I just had an encounter like this maybe two weeks ago. At an event where I was speaking, one of the attendees came up to me and said, they were a little frustrated because they would go to their advisor and the advisor would say, what do you want for their for four-year estate planning? And they would say, well, that's why I'm here. I don't know what I want. And then they would say, well, you need to come back uh, when you know what you want. 
And I think that we need to, as advisors, for example, and, and as consumers of these services, we need to realize that we can't do anything that, that is going to have an intrinsic sense of long-term success unless it actually reflects what we all want, if it's something that we all want. And really, we're just trying to plan with the end in mind and get back to the spend some time at the front end, call it a strategic process, call it whatever you like, but spend some time at the front end establishing what the purpose of accumulating this wealth was in the first place and why it matters to get it through to the end. And if we do that, then we end up with tactics that will have a better chance of being successful. It's not uncommon, for example, Maria, and, and I'm sure you've there are some, some of my colleagues out there that uh, are very well known that talk about the fact that, well, 50% of adult Canadians don't even have a written will. I come across that all the time. In fact, I'll see a will that is uh, written, but it's 15 years old or 20 years old, and there's been tremendous changes in their family since they did the will, which from my standpoint is just barely better than not having a will at all, from my viewpoint. That's just barely better than not having a, a will at all. And I think that that's part of the problem that we find. We're looking at at state planning as a transaction, sort of an event. So something's happened and I have to respond with a document. Rather than looking at it as a a lifelong process while we are responsible adults, to which we're bringing meaning and purpose at every step of the operation uh, along the way. Sounds like a lot of work. It is work, but is worth it because... I mean, really, if you reflect on the the terminology that we're using, what could be better than bringing purpose to your plan and long-term goals rather than a series of tactics? We tell our children as we raise them, you know, what was your plan? What, what What was the end goal you were trying to get to here? And yet, when we do our own state planning or our own tax planning, we're often just trying to get a short-term fix on some stimulus that has arisen. We don't often build it into the context of the fullness of our lives, uh, the ones that we love. So for me, I think that planning for purpose is really an attempt to get over that one contributor to the breakup of intergenerational family wealth, which is that we fail to think long-term. If we can plan with purpose, we're always thinking long-term about our wealth because in the long-term for the ones that we love, we we want to contribute purpose and be a part of the purpose of their lives as well. And that's very interesting. And it leads me to my next question, which is, Chris, can you describe some of the steps that might be involved in a more strategic plan for wealth succession? When we're looking at wealth succession, I think the important starting point is, of course, what is our purpose? But I think we also have to acknowledge at the beginning that it is a process. It is not a series of isolated steps. So oftentimes the advice, and it's good advice, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just that we can do more. The advice we give to people is that you should look at your will every three to five years or when there's a change in your family situation somewhere. And that might include a dramatic change in your financial wealth. I would never argue with that. Those are very good reasons to take a look at your plan. What I'm suggesting is yes, and we should also look at it as a continuous process of planning. So in terms of steps, I think we want to try to have four or five steps, if we can, that we're always circling back into. A good starting point for any planning, and I'm not suggesting one process is better than another. I think if you adopt a process of some sort, you're better off than if you're just responding to stimulus. 
But if you're going to adopt a process, a good starting point is to make sure that the information that's coming in and the decisions that are being made on that information is effective and is accurate and we've stripped out all of the biases and all of the old prejudices inside the family, all of the old perspectives as much as we can. And when we're doing this kind of intergenerational wealth planning, we may have to change or we may have to acknowledge that some of the old ways that we did our family communication or some of the old ways that we did our family decision making aren't going to serve us terribly effectively in the future. Things have changed. So having effective communication and having a process for a series of family meetings, for example, is a wonderful starting place. And what you want to do in those family meetings from a standpoint, you know, adopt some content that allows you to build skills inside the family. So for example, in any given meeting, you might have a third new content, um, a, a third where you're sharing some information, and then maybe a third of the time is spent on a fun activity. And if you reflect on those meeting silos, you know, what you'll see is that uh, you're building a variety of skills, but you're also formulating a very thick sinew of communication capacity inside the family. So building effective communication and starting with family meetings is probably a great starting point. The next steps that I often will suggest are to go through a values exercise of some sort. Identify the shared values between the generations. So if you've got two parents and there are two or three children who have young families of their own, what are their shared values? Because you've got new members of that family. You've got in-laws now. And what are the shared values? How have things modulated over time? If you understand your shared values inside the family, then there's going to be common core planning that you can do to, to go across generations. That may lead to a family mission statement, statement of values, something like that. There's a lot of different terminology, a lot of different levels of complexity and depth that you can bring to that. But some sort of basic activity around identifying that will really help give strong planning a chance to go across generations. Another step would then be to have a, for lack of a better term, I'll call it a strategic engine in, inside your family as far as decision making goes. And that is to make sure that the goals and the values that you have identified are constantly brought to the planning and then constantly tested tactically to make sure that things that are being done, such as a trust or an estate freeze, for example, fit the values and fit the mission statement that the family has. So we're always going back and back testing our choices to make sure that there's a consistency here. And that's not to say that it has to be rigid. It, it certainly should be flexible and supple that way. But we want to make sure we're making decisions for the right reasons. So a third step, and it's kind of a broad step, would be to bring a, a strategic engine to that. In the work that, that I do, the conversations with families that, that I have, really we're looking at, we've got our goals here. What are some steps? What are, what are the broad brush steps that are going to bring success to those goals? How completing our family mission, we need some broad goals that will bring success to achieving that family mission. Then the next step would be looking at, now that we've identified these broad measures of success, how do we bring meaning to that? How do we effectuate that in a, a way that allows action to uh, be achieved with our purpose? So those are often objectives in a strategic plan. Then we're looking at creating a recipe for that. We're going to build a group of strategies that are like baking a pie. You know, we know we want an apple pie because people love apple pie. How are we going to put the recipe together? And the recipe really is the strategy, the, the smallest strategy that we're going to use to achieve all of these various goals and all of these various objectives that we've laid out. 
And then finally, we do the tack. We make sure that through all of our planning, when we get the tactics, we are now putting the horse in front of the cart. The cart is now in the right place as far as the planning goes. And then the final step, that's sort of a strategic engine there. For That's the fourth step. The final step that I think people should always have in mind is to make sure that they build a team of collaborative and mindful advisors that will support their goals and support their planning through the whole process. And when I say that, of course, their advisors will do the things they want to do. But I think they should be participating in this whole process. They should be wanting to be part of the strategic model. They should be contributing their own, their own, their own network. So you want to have a purposeful plan, but you want to have purposefully minded and collaboratively minded advisors as well. People who will check their ego at the door, work with all of the advisors that you work with towards the common goal, preserve the wealth across multiple generations. If you've got a soft spot in any of those planning contributors, and by soft spot, I don't mean a technical soft spot. I just mean someone whose mindset is maybe not aligned collaboratively with what you're trying to achieve. That can cause problem in the decision-making ecosystem of your estate planning and, and of your succession planning. So, you know, when you're looking at steps in a successful plan, I like to extend to Stern and analyze what we're, we're looking at here. It's not just having a good tactic. It's having goals, having steps to achieve those goals, having tactics to implement, and then having advisors that are implementing those tactics for us who also understand our goals, ideal, contributed to, and were part of the process of identifying those goals as well. I have done some training where we, significant component of the client experience is to function in what you would call a multidisciplinary team. So not where the lawyer does some work and then hands it off to the accountant who does some work. And then really along the way, the, the client has to be very mindful and perhaps even knowledgeable of, of some of the detailed reasons for tactics, that doesn't work because what happens is the client gets stalled. They can't see the broader picture. What you really need is a multidisciplinary approach where, where the client is at the center of the planning wheel and everyone around them is communicating and sharing and, and understands that there is a timeline here that is for the client. And it could take a long time. It could take a short amount of time, but it's the client's time at the end of the day. And I think at the end of the day, if we can appreciate that that is what we're trying to bring as a process that is a, an authentic timeline, that reflects an authentic timeline for the client, then we will have success putting together purposeful, long-term, intergenerational uh, succession plans. And that's really interesting. And your wisdom and your experience is so strong and deep. And we thank you for all of your ideas. And now, you know what? I'd like to talk about your book. Oh, your, thank you. <laughs> I think the people have a good idea of what you've been talking about. But I'd like you to spend some time to talk about your book. It is called The Naked Opus, Growing Family Wealth for the Long Term. The title that you picked, Chris, is very intriguing. And can you describe how that fits with our conversation today? Well, 
I hope I've described as I've gone through other questions that you've asked me, Mary, my thinking on what it means to transition and to plan for the transition of wealth from one generation to the next and hopefully to many generations. I've tried to bring a lot of what a reader might find in the book through our conversation. The naked opus part, it stuck in my head really early. I started writing this probably about five years ago, maybe six years ago. It was a long process, probably appropriate given what we've been talking about. Either that or I'm a very slow writer. And going through that process of thinking through it, I realized that there's a couple of things that are going on at every level here. When I'm asking clients to do certain things and when I'm researching areas that perplex me, I'm starting to see themes that are coming out. And there were two that came up. And so I thought, well, I kind of have a good sense of humor. Why don't I have a sort of a cheeky title that will give me the opportunity to explain some of my thinking in this world that I'm in. The naked part of the the title comes from the fact that we need to be transparent in our planning. We need to reveal our goals. We need to be prepared as advisors to help our clients reveal their true goals about their planning because we're not going to be able to do long-term consistent well planning if we don't understand what their real goals are. If we're just looking at tactics, we won't get there. So we have to have an understanding through effective communication and decision-making models that allow the truth to come up that there's this transparency. So if you really want to succeed with intergenerational wealth planning, you have to be prepared to get naked in what you're prepared to share with your family. So that was one theme that I started to see coming out. The other theme that came out was that it was a process and that it is a long-term process. And it is a process that requires the input of the perceptions of the second generation, but possibly the third generation as well. And I've worked with some families where there are adult grandchildren and some great-grandchildren that are coming along. And we've had some fabulous communicative experiences where we've been sharing all of the perspectives. And every generation is often astounded by what the other generation is sharing. So it becomes really a process of building a shared narrative and storytelling experience. And that, when you think about it, is your opus. It is the the life story. It's your greatest story you'll ever tell. It's about the people that you are planning for. It's about the whys in your life. So I put those two concepts together in the title. The naked part of it, of course, is transparency. And the opus part of it is the continuity that we bring to it. And so the naked opus, and I tease it through the story a little bit. The book itself is written as a narrative. And what it does, it's for advisors and for their clients. So anyone can read it in there. What I'm hoping is that advisors will read it and they'll say, I really want to bring added value proposition that I have for my clients. And I can see myself in some of the characters that are in here. What I want for the clients is to look at that and say, I have this wealth and I can see myself in some of the family characters that have been introduced in this book. But I also can see my advisors and who they are and how I communicate with them. And maybe I need to start asking different questions or having different expectations, or maybe I'm getting all this. This is fantastic. Like this is a a level of planning, a level of thought that I get and I'm on the right path. So through a narrative, I'm trying to tell the the stories of how uh, the main character is a chap named Rick Gilmore, and he's starting uh, a file interaction that the client that left both himself and the client feeling a little hollow, a little empty, like there was something, they were tactically strong, 
but they just weren't happy with the direction they were taking. And the reality was they didn't have a direction. They hadn't really stopped to think about a direction and build a story around that. So they were trying to be very, we're all emotional. And what they were trying to be was very rational about what is really a very emotional and, and emotionally driven set of decisions pertaining to the ones we love and the sources of wealth that we're going to pass to the ones that we love. And it takes them through a process of how to reveal those true goals and true values. And at the end of the day, end up with a plan that will be a long-term plan, their own family opus. So I put the two together and that was how we ended up with the Naked Opus. And that's very interesting. And how can people purchase your book? The book will be available on Amazon later in the summer. I believe it's the first week of August. And you'll be able to purchase it through Chapters and other fine bookstores. In the first week of August, I believe, is when uh, it will be available there. And you can also obtain copies, larger quantity copies, if you like, through the website, which is uh, www.nakedopus.com and you'll see that there will be some uh, thoughts there to help guide you in your search for information at that website. And what we're also going to do to help promote your book is we will put it on our website and profile it so our community can learn more about it and we will do everything to support your efforts because I have read the book and it is wonderful and thoughtful and easy to read. I am not a lawyer, but I read the whole book and it was a wonderful read. So thank you, Chris, for spending time to talk to us today about wealth, about transition of wealth and about your book. Well, thank you, Mary. And I hope that people will get the opportunity to read it or spend some time with someone who has read it and talk about it. It was intended not to be a technical book. It's intended to be an accessible narrative and it's got a bit of a sense of humor in it. So I hope people will enjoy it. Well, thank you very much and thank you for joining our project.